I think we need to remember that as you think, as you are, and as you remain. Um, so if you're not prepared to shift your thinking, and you know what, it's very difficult to shift your thinking. You, you, you're set in your ways, you've been doing it this way for a period of time. Um, I think you've got to be willing, as I said before, to see, think, plan and act, um, I guess, philosophy that was taught to me by a great mentor is what I now do is I actually break things down and I look at what are the options? What does different look like? And in terms of different, what in terms of a business perspective, you know, what is different in terms of what is no one else doing? Well, how can I create a proposition out of a problem? Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with an organizational change specialist, independent advisor, living proof of how to survive and then thrive during crisis, and author of Stop the Bleeding, a mind shift through business crisis management. He has an advanced management program and a master's degree in enterprise from the University of Melbourne, has completed an executive study at INSEED and is a graduate of company directors course from the Australian Institute of Company Directors. His career has included managing director at APM Group Australia, regional manager Victoria for Broad Construction, non-executive director at 13th Beach Golf Links, has held interim general manager and CEO roles at companies such as Arrow International, LSH Property Australia, and Longevity Group Australia, and has founded Sentiment and BrianSands.com. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a wonderful leader who knows what resilience in the business world is all about, has a passion for thinking and doing everything differently, and loves giving advice with impact through B1G1. Brian Sands. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Craig. It's a pleasure. It's great. And, and look, you know, this has been an incredible year where we've seen a lot of change. We've seen people going through crisis. But what people forget is they have so much learning from all the years from being a child right through that they can actually use that to actually thrive at this time. So before we dive into some crisis management and talk around how we deal with those situations, let's take a step back in memory lane. You know, where did you grow up and what sparked your curiosity as a child? Sparking my curiosity, look, I've, I've been in the construction and property game for over 30 years. And it, I think it was always that um, excitement around building something. Even as a child, I, I have these visuals back to my, my parents and grandparents building houses and being a part of that. So it was really around creating something, making something, building something. I think that's where that curiosity started for me. Yeah. And, and so for you, obviously, as someone who has led in the construction industry, you know, didn't leading come naturally for you as a teenager in your younger years? I don't recall that it did. I was fairly passive at school. Um, I wouldn't say I was outstanding in any way, shape or form. 
it's just something that developed later. And I think for me, it was really around the time when I was working for myself. I was working for myself very early. When I left school, um, I decided to uh, do a carpentry apprenticeship. And I was 18 or 19 years of age at the time. So I'd gone right through school. And, and I do remember the whoever the apprenticeships board was in Victoria, convincing them to give me an apprenticeship or the ability to do an apprenticeship as a subcontractor. And they said, well, you can't do that. There's no other subcontract apprenticeship in Australia. So anyway, I was successful with that. So, and I had people to guide me through that apprenticeship. But as soon as I finished that, I was out on my own. I decided to get out on my own and uh, threw all the tools in the back of a station wagon and off we went. And then the stock market crashed. And then a couple of years later, you know, the recession we had to have. So it was really back then, um, as a sole trader, you've got to work it out for yourself. And I was a very young age. I didn't know anything else other than how to get it going, how to get going, um, how to create a business. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's really where it started for me. I, I, I didn't start in a position where I was employed and perhaps following instructions, if you like. <laughs> I sort of made it up um, as we went along early days. Yeah, brilliant. So a real entrepreneurial mindset. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, and and obviously that's, you know, the building industry and, and carpentry, you said, comes through from, you know, generations before you. Mm. So what values did your, say, your grandparents or your parents instill in you, you know, during those younger times that allowed you to kind of thrive as you started, you know, setting up your own business? Yeah, look, I, I think it's that... Well, no, I'm absolutely convinced that it's this work hard ethic. Um, and you know, when the stock market crashed and we had the recession we had to have, I actually moved to country Victoria. My first business partner was my grandfather. He was a 65-year-old, semi-retired, country town, handyman builder. And we worked together. And it was really reinforced for me what they, what he had taught me and my parents had taught me was you've just got to get on with it. You know, it's up to you. You are in control of your own destiny if you want to be successful. Yeah, and, and so going back to those times where you talk about the stock market crashing and the financial recessions of the 1990s, etc. Hmm. For you personally, during those times of uncertainty, what did it feel like as, as the shifts in the, in the kind of the housing market were happening at that time as well? You know, what did it feel like for you? Look, I can't remember is the honest answer other than that I have reflected on it um, a fair bit, especially when I was writing the book. And I think what it, the reflection for me back then was that my obligations were very small. So I had this ability perhaps or the willingness to really um, go out there and push hard, to push on, to push through. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have children. Um, I was a 20-year-old guy. I was a 22-year-old guy. So it was sleeves rolled up, go as hard as you can and create some success along the way. And that's what, I, you know, I was quite fortunate for quite a number of years, uh, you know, through this period to, um, to continue to see. It did, however, get to a point where there was very little work around. And, um, you know, I walked into the CES or the Centrelink jobs office and pulled a job off the board and went for a job application or a job interview that went for eight hours. So, and then that started the next phase for me. So, you know, it was really this sliding doors moment where I gave it a go, if you like, for quite a number of years as a driving around Victoria, or, or, you know, in, in, in this old Ford station wagon with the blue here in the back. It's, you know, it's that, it's that visual that I think it's pretty easy to put together. 
And then you know, I worked into an office environment using my carpentry skills and whatever I'd learned in terms of self-leadership, I guess, and started working for a business at that point. And uh, that's the point when I first um, became an employee, albeit for a very short period of time. Yeah, and so I'm really curious there, right? So you've gone from someone who uses their hands, uh, mm. very tactile, and you, you, you've got that daily grind of getting out there no matter what the weather is, uh, mm. no matter how you're feeling, you've got to get outside, you've got to work hard to make things yeah. happen and to, to earn a living. Mm. What was the, the shift like for you going from you know, being a builder, being a carpenter, to actually then going in and now being in construction management in a desk job? Yeah, look, I, the, the shift was really good because I was able to, as you say, use those skills, bring them in-house, if you like. And I worked for a business that was a sizable business. So there was very large carpentry and plastering jobs up and down the east coast of Australia. So within a very short period of time, I was using these, you know, I, I guess I could build buildings and therefore I was learning how to build teams and um, build success on larger projects. So, you know, by the... I can't tell you the exact age, but it was about mid twenties. I was, I, I do have a thing for numbers, and I knew, I knew I was managing 538 plastering and plasters and carpenters up and down the east coast of Australia. At you know, I think it was about 26. So that that became more fulfilling for me. I could see what I could see buildings being built. I could see things being created, and I was responsible for that. It it was the same, but of a higher volume. So that was exciting for me. Yeah, and then so obviously now you're dealing with people, right? So yeah, when you've got your yeah. own business and maybe one or two people helping you, it, it's quite mm. easy. You can communicate with every single mm. one of them every single day. But now mm. you're going into a position where you've got people in different locations. You've got mm. you know, 500 plus people. Yeah. How did you then start to ensure that you were connecting with each person and been able to manage them in a, in a bigger environment? Yeah, that was very difficult. That was probably, that would have been uh, the hardest thing because, you know, don't forget I was a 25, 26 year old guy um, who was managing guys twice my age who had been set in their ways and doing their own thing. And it was a very much an industrial environment, award wages, overtime, all of that sort of thing. So these, a lot of these workers were just head down, backside up, getting it done. And I was trying to communicate with these guys, share plans, share programs. This is where we're going next. And not a lot of them engaged in that. So I didn't, I found it a challenge, but it didn't limit the successes in any way because these guys are, had tunnel vision around what their end game needed to be. It wasn't until um, I had an opportunity to go and set this guy's business up in New Zealand. I was about 28 at the time that um, starting from scratch, and opening doors and communicating with people is when I really understood how that success could work from the start. Uh, sorry, that people communication, collaboration, success could work from the start. And how did you find that adjustment to now you're reporting to someone above you, you know, mm. and, and so there's pressure coming down and, and you're now working with people, as you say, more than twice your age, some of them, mm. there's pressure coming from up underneath. How, how did you, how did you cope with that kind of sandwich pressure that can occur in those environments yeah I, I was okay with it because i clearly had an i had a clear end game i knew where i wanted to be by when so if i use the example of that um previous employer well my only employer really um back then it was i knew that i wanted to go and get this overseas experience you know i i'd, I'd managed all these uh people in australia 
go and set this business up overseas, really get some success out of that and come back and do it myself. So I, I didn't feel like it was limiting me in any way. I saw it as an opportunity to learn and extract as much as I could and then go and do it myself and I returned to Australia. And it, it sort of worked out that way. There was some really great opportunities that allowed that to happen for me. And I'm, I'm, um, whilst I left that New Zealand business in um, less than amicable circumstances due to some incentives that weren't paid and that sort of stuff that we all hear about as a young person, it was really fundamental for me around how to treat people um, and how or perhaps what not to do in growing a business and growing trust with people in order to grow a business. Yeah, some great, great learnings there. Mm. And what's interesting too, right, like I grew up in New Zealand and, and lived in a couple mm. of different countries now, but, but from overseas, everyone kind of sees as New Zealand and Australia very, very similar, but mm. however, they are quite... Not until you get there. <laughs> they are quite different, correct? So yes, we yeah. get along and have a beer together and we compete yeah. well, but it yeah. is quite a different culture. Yeah. Was, it, was it a bit of a culture shock for you then having to manage people that were a little bit different? Not really. I think it's how you, how you treat people, how you respect people. I came, my position was, again, what I'd learned back in Australia was trying to deal with people that were twice my age and very set in their ways and very union and all of that sort of thing. The, I mean, New Zealand was different because they had the Employment Contracts Act, so there was none of this unionisation of the workforce. But I learned um, that I, if I get these people to think that they are teaching me, even though I might be their supervisor or whatever it is, if they thought they were giving me a little bit every day and we were sharing learnings perhaps, you know, I'm sharing the journey where the business is going, I'm sharing the success, I'm telling them where they could contribute to that success. But, hey, tell me how you do it in New Zealand. Why do you do it that way? I, it, it was actually a lot of fun. I actually mm. really enjoyed that part of it. And, you know, I still remember some extraordinary stories about some people that I met um, who actually came to work for me. Brilliant. Mm. And it's such a great approach too. I, you know, for those who haven't worked overseas and are looking at doing that in the future, it mm. is really important to go with an open mind, ask those questions, and, you know, you figure out a way to to phrase things as well so that it feels like mm. it's their idea and not your idea as someone new coming into their space. Absolutely. Any of this parochial expertise is going to get you nowhere. So, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Good fun. And, and look, you know, I've got uh, family that have worked in the construction industry and, and of mm. um, building industry and I've seen them ride the waves over over a couple mm. of decades now. And yeah. as, as the financial crisis comes in and recessions occur, et cetera, you're obviously building quite a bit of resilience in that industry as you, you can kind of see patterns start to come and, and you mm. you able to cope with it more effectively each time. Mm. For people that have kind of had an, a fairly smooth ride in most of their career mm. and, and then 2020 yeah. hits, what yeah. are some things that you can suggest to them to in a way to approach it so it doesn't overly consume you? I think the best thing to consider, and I learned this the hard way many years ago during the GFC when my business, so I ended up um, having a, uh, I was a major shareholder of a business that was turning over in excess of $100 million back then. And we were on our knees very quickly. So if I was to sort of fast forward that to now and anyone who's had smooth sailing um, and they're really concerned about what's coming next, where I would start is, okay, you need to think about the here and now, but something that I would consider is that where do you want to be by when? It's, it's, it's that, it is a bit of a cliche. What does success look for you, 
for you. I think if you've got a longer term vision of where you need to be and you're willing to understand that history tells us there are cycles in business and some of these cycles are going to take you down to a very low point. But if you've got a mindset that you know that there is a there is an outcome um, for you down the track, I think that is the only way you can get through it. If you think about tomorrow, if you overly obsess about tomorrow, I think tomorrow is going to get worse and worse and worse before you get there. Mm. Um, so, you know, I experienced that in my own business, as I say, back in the GFC, we had this, uh, when the, was this post GFC and we had a subcontractor that went into li liquidation and we made some mistakes internally to have this person doing too many projects for us. So we had a lot of eggs in one basket in this particular trade. So, uh, you know, I, I had 130 staff at that stage and I got my leadership team around the table. I'd been traveling overseas to put some joint ventures together with some um, large public companies in the Middle East, but came back, this stuff was unfolding. And I said, right guys, we've got a $450,000 problem, which in a hundred million dollar plus business might not seem terribly significant, except that we were now post GFC. So for a year, we'd been doing a lot of work for nothing. So every little bit was gonna hurt. So we had a strategy, we came up, with the strategy to fix that. But within the case, uh, within a period of six weeks, this $450,000 problem became a $5 million problem that was about to wipe us out. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I remember it very clearly. And I guess it is the foundation of a lot of the learnings that have gone into my book. But, and I obsessed about tomorrow. I obsessed about liquidators calling me. I obsessed about how I was going to pay wages, how I was going to pay my kids' school fees, all of that sort of stuff. And it, it took me down for quite, you know, for quite a, a, well, a short period at the end because there was only one choice. It was either to turn the lights off and put the key in the door and then deal with everything that came my way or roll my sleeves up and fight. So it was very much, it took me quite a while or six weeks or so to work out that there was an, an end game and this is how we were going to get there. So I guess apologies for the long story, but as long as you can realise that they're always, yeah, the sun's going to shine tomorrow, and if you can create some sort of a positive mindset to say, right, I'm going to have to dust myself off along the way here. There's going to be a, a little bit of pain, but I know there is an outcome coming my way. And if I've got that positive mindset, it, it actually is going to come your way. Mm, and I think that's a really good approach. And I, it's probably the first time I've really heard someone position it in that way where it's, it's not about tomorrow. It's, you know, you need to look more into the future mm, here. Yeah. And, you know, you can't just sit back and wait. You can't wait for no. the crisis to finish. No, the and you, that's exactly right. And I, and I think you, you cannot manage a crisis effectively based on what you think tomorrow is going to look like. It's going to sh change tomorrow. Mm. Um, you know, something's going to come out of left field you hadn't even contemplated. You know, from $450,000 problem to a $5 million problem where we were ripping up roads in Geelong and lifting roofs off buildings. And, you know, it was just horrible. But, you know, we knew that this is our path to get through to the other side. We had to go through this pain. We had to, in, we had to restore, or not restore actually, um, enhance our reputation as being people who are gonna fight and roll their sleeves up and during this recession and, and get this stuff done. And, and that ultimately um, underpinned a very successful uh, one, two and three year, three phased turnaround for that business. And, and it's really interesting, you know, when we talk, when we look at successful people in the world, mm. they are the ones that fail the most and they continue to learn and go up all the time. And, you know, some of the, the most most successful companies in the world right now have have come about because of they've used that crisis moment to actually 
yeah. make something different and to lean into it rather than lean out of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think that's the only way you, one of the only ways you, that you'll have an ability to, for want of a better word, control the outcomes. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, so, so good. So, uh, yeah, I mean, be a participant rather than a passenger. Um, hard to, well, easy to say, hard to do because, you know, when it's all coming your way, there is a, a retreat mindset. And look, I, I experienced that, absolutely. And it took me a while to put my hand up for that. Um, you know, however, it, it, it was a great learning. It's fundamentally changed my mindset um, and it fundamentally changes how I do a lot of things today. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and look, you know, there's a big, uh, there's consistency coming through in a theme here at the moment where you are, it's all about being really driven and looking for new ways uh, mm. to do things. So how would your team describe your leadership style? It's very open. Um, I believe in respectfully telling it how it is. Uh, you know, we're, we're all in this together. Here's Here's the problem. Let's not dwell on the problem. Here's the solution. So I hope they would say solution orientated, very open in terms of the impact it will have to my people firstly, and the impact that that or the success that that could be created for the business um, on a much larger scale. I'm, I don't believe in um, sitting behind a desk and managing a, vis a business via email, for example. I'm mm -hmm. very much out there walking it. Yeah. Walk in the talk. Over the last decade, you have, um, you know, shifted really into more of an advisory role. You've mm. moved into businesses and being kind of an interim general manager or, or a CEO kind mm. of role. What led you to that position and, and why do you thrive in those roles? Yeah, I th it, it was really, um, for us, for a while there, I didn't know the answer to your question quite some time ago. You know, we'd gone through a very aggressive period post GFC. I'm talking financial aggressive, uh, financially aggressive, physically aggressive, potentially, you know, it, it was everything you could think of was, was um, thrown at us and me. However, once we got through that, I, I, I got a, I found that from a purpose perspective, I got a kick out of solving problems for other people. Um, and, I actually couldn't I didn't anticipate that I would go back into this or go into an advisory role, getting involved in the same level potentially of distress or uncertainty, or maybe it's not distress. Maybe it's a transformation piece. Yeah, but I just love the whole people piece. I love the whole change piece. I say to my wife, for example, you know, I could change every day. I quite like that. I get excited by change. And as I said, I get excited by solving problems for other people. Yeah. And you've also spent a lot of this time too studying. So you've gone back to, mm. uni you've gone to university. Yeah. Uh, what's it like for you to uh, be in that space where quite often you've got a lot of younger, stu younger people that are around mm. you? How has that kind of shifted your view on both leadership and organizational change? Having younger people around me or the education or both. all of it, perhaps. Both. Yeah, yeah. Both together. So, yeah. yeah. Look, I, um, it's taught me a couple of things, and I'll put the education first. And, um, you know, I did a carpentry apprenticeship, and then I learned a lot of um, how, to, how to manage people and how to build a business by actually doing it, um, you know, on the, at the coalface, behind the desk, um, surrounded by other business leaders in another business. 
And when we got through, and then got involved with this, uh, with my own business and had some great mentors, learned a lot of stuff. I was a sponge for knowledge. And then I just wanted more. I took the responsibility of being a company director very seriously. And I went to the Australian Institute of Company Directors and learned some stuff. Um, then I went to Melbourne Business School and learned a series of, of, um, of things around business management. And then when I went to University of Melbourne and did a master's degree in enterprise, that really put all my fundamental on the ground learnings um, together with some, I think, perhaps some traditional theoretical academic models and it just brought it all together for me it sort of went boom I didn't come from a position of learning academically and then you know trying to put that into practice on the job I think the way I did it was really um, really quite successful and then when I when you're talking about younger people or when I'm considering younger people my mindset has changed significantly especially having children of my own and I have a, a daughter who's 24 and I have two other daughters who are teenagers and um you know, I was pretty hard on my eldest daughter, um, uh, you know, not proud to say during this sort of GFC turnaround days, there was a lot going on. It was very aggressive. And I wanted my daughter Jess to be successful when you're going to this school. And I was really sweating the small stuff about our investment in that and her future. And it caused a bit of tension, as you could imagine. And when I went through my own growth with the business and had this awakening around seeing and thinking differently about everything, I just really backed off and understood that you know these young people have more to offer than i have and sort of like i had more to offer than my grandfather did as my first business partner there's this evolution and i think if you're not prepared to learn off the people around you especially the younger generation who see things so differently i think um, you're potentially holding yourself back significantly yeah i always look at it from a perspective that you should be mentoring up and mentoring down and it coming yeah. from that 360 mm. degree view rather than you know, thinking you know everything or, or surrounding yeah. yourself with other successful people. It's like, what can we learn from yeah, different Yeah, that's, views? that's exactly right. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we learn, um, unfortunately, perhaps we learn firstly with those closest to us. Mm. That really turns the light on. So, um, yeah, that's, it was a really interesting awakening, let's say. <laughs> And in talking about awakening or, or waking up other people, you recently have written a book called Stop the Bleeding. Yes. And we quite often see in the world where people will stick a Band-Aid on mm. and they think everything's solved and they continue on. Mm. But when you talk about Stop the Bleeding, it's not just sticking a Band-Aid on, it's taking oh. it further. So what yeah. inspired you to put pen to paper, so to speak, and, and what's mm. Stop the Bleeding all about? Uh, what inspired... Well... What inspired me to put pen to paper, I guess, was this solving problems for other people. And the book is, a, is essentially two things. It is a how-to guide, if you like. And it started off around how to manage a business through crisis, through seeing and thinking everything differently. It's um, all cards are on the table, tipping the box upside down. It's that sort of analogy. However, when I started creating this book, I thought, well, hang on, this is not actually about crisis management. All these fundamentals are exactly the same for any business. Business um, origination, transformation, turnaround, crisis management, it's actually all the same and it's around the three fundamentals of people, leadership and strategy. And they can be, they can be three cliches or they can be described with cliches. So I really wanted to flip that concept on its head. And the other thing I wanted to do was um, probably dumb it down a bit. And what I mean by that is having learnt 
at the coalface on the streets, if you like, and then going to university and putting it all together, not knocking university at all. It was very, um, it, it was great. I enjoyed it. It really helped me validate a lot of things. But I also felt going through my own turnaround with some great mentors, so it can get overly academic and scientific for those people that don't understand it. So I felt this was a way to actually simplify the complexity with a lot of models, a lot of step through, one, two, three, four, five, step through these things, have you thought about this, and then make your own decisions. Don't be really entrenched in what I would call traditional management practices. Mm. Yeah, I talk a lot around simplification is sophistication. Yeah. Um, so when we can remove the barriers of complexity, then people are mm. able to grasp it easily and, and yeah, utilize yeah. And it. I, and look, I'm a very visual person, so there are a 20 or so models in that book that I, you know, I would very much open a blank sheet of paper, scribble a picture or scribble a scenario, and I'd really be able to step my way through that um, as opposed to looking at an, the academic um, interpretation or definition of competition, for example, something like that. And so as you, you know, when you're writing the book, Stop the Bleeding, and it takes, a, it takes a, quite a lot of work and dedication to write a book, what were some of the, you know, maybe three key things that you learned more about yourself as you were writing the book and um, un, sort of putting out there everything that you had learned, uh, not only on the job, but also from an academic perspective and was simplifying it? I think um, I, I was able, I think in terms of the three things, I would say number one was simplifying strategy. I think people get caught up in strategy. Um, for example, I was at a board meeting yesterday and I'm, I was talking about purpose. We need to come up with a compelling reason for being. Um, and one of the people has been doing this for a lot longer than me. So I guess I'm giving a hint as to the demographic is, no, we need to sort the strategy first. And it's really, I guess my point in explaining that is people get caught up in strategy um, and what it really does. So I was able to simplify strategy with some great mentors and i think strategy is a process of thing seeing thinking planning and acting differently and i think it's a four-step process um, rather than this academic approach of the what people get caught up in the what rather than the why um, so simplifying strategy was key for me i think there's a there's quite a personal journey for me writing that book um, and without getting the violins and tissues out <laughs> it was something that i had uh, i'd scribbled notes in a black pad for six or eight years or something. And I had this, I was fighting internally that post GFC and post recovery of my business, I stepped out because I was shot. I was absolutely done. And I gave a lot away to step out thinking that I was clearing my mind, but it actually, I actually didn't do that at all. I'd actually loaded myself up with this responsibility to chase revenue for me personally and for my family. because I was still dusting myself off. So, um, I go deep into that in my book and it was actually a really, I would say, awesome, um, relaxing moment of realization that I actually moved on. I was carrying around a lot of, um, I guess, stress for quite some time post that, that um, GFC situation. It, it, this was a private business. It was a significant size business, multi-million dollars worth of losses potentially that we recovered, um, hundreds of staff hundreds of you know family members and livelihood so i took all that very personally and you know what i'm very grateful now for that experience having as i say dusted myself and um got got through that i find that that purpose is reinforced for me around solving problems for other people and so as 
you know, people gone through 2020, they, they're going to get a chance now where they've, they've been mm. full on trains moving at 100 miles an hour and yeah. Christmas is coming up. And, and for those who are listening, this this would have been Christmas in the past because it will mm. come out a bit later on. Yeah. It is, but it is applicable at any time you listen to this. How can people, as they start to reflect, uh, reflect on what they've been going through, what can they do from a mindset point of view um, to to shift their mindset mm. and have a mind shift for 2021? I, I think, it, look, there there is some retraining involved, and I don't mean that as uh, you need to sign up to university or any of that sort of stuff, but, you know, this whole, I think we need to remember that as you think, as you are, and as you remain. Um, so if you're not prepared to shift your thinking, and you know what, it's very difficult to shift your thinking. You, you, you set in your ways, you've been doing it this way for a period of time. Um, I think you've got to be willing, as I said before, the see, think, plan and act, um, I guess, philosophy that was taught to me by a great mentor is what I now do is I actually break things down and I look at what are the options? What does different look like? And in terms of different, what in terms of a business perspective, you know, what is different in terms of what is no one else doing? Well, how can I create a proposition out of a problem? Um, you know, quite often when we're thinking about what's coming next, it's like, oh, where am I going now? Business is doing this. The economy is doing this. Instead of looking around doing more of the same differently, why not look at the problems in getting there and creating something out of that? So I guess what I'm trying to say is you've, you've really got to um, open your mind up. And I think 2020 has given us an excuse if you need one to think about things totally differently. You know, if, if you need a reason to do something a bit random or think of something a bit alternatively, use 2020 as your excuse and then you'll get some momentum. You'll find that, hey, hang on, that's not a, actually not a bad thing. It actually, it, it'll free up. You'll become more creative. I, I really like that aspect. Mm. And talking about creativity, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. Hmm. When was the last time you did something for the first time? <laughs> That's a very easy question to answer. Here and now, an hour ago, when you and I jumped on this podcast, I've never done one before. And um, I'm really excited to do it. I'm really uh, excited. It's For me, it's an extension of hopefully some people who will listen to this might pick up one or two things out of this. And I think, uh, I think that's a great thing. So very interesting that it happens to be today. <laughs> and you've done very, very well. I must admit. Kind of you. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, without wanting to sound like a cliche, I think one of the things that we as business leaders or owners really need to, we do understand, but we really need to get deep into it is that we've got to understand that our employees, our people, our workforce, our, you know, the people that we partner with on a commercial basis spend 50% of their wake, even though you think it's 30%, they spend 50% of their waking life um, em employed, working for us in an organizational setting and, um, I think it's um, we need to move from mental health awareness and mental health solutions. We need to move from a nice to have to a must have. And, and um, I'm really quite passionate about that. Um, and what I'm doing, I can say you know, confidentially and tell you a bit more about it next year is that I've been working on a technology 
with my wife, um, who is a people person. She's an, um, a change person, change management person. We and another person have been working on a technology, um, a natural language processing technology that uses the concept of sentiment analysis in order to enable business leaders to have a very clear picture on the, um, the let's say the well-being of their teams. It's not an individually focused um, offering or product or service solution. It's more around how a business can in intervene on a collective basis and include the well-being of a team. Because after all, healthy businesses create, uh, sorry, healthy people create successful businesses. And, and I think it's more of that critical mass. This is why we're focusing on the team, collect the, the team, the collective is because that's how we can get critical mass for change. So, um, sorry, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there. We've, we've spent 12 months on, on this and uh, hopefully in January, we're walking down the street with a pitch deck and um, a minimum viable product idea that really does something about changing this whole concept of workforce well-being into being something really fundamental about putting people first. Yeah, well, I'm excited uh, about that and I look forward to seeing you know, seeing the results of the work that you're putting into that space because it's so important uh, mm. in the world right now. Mm. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Mm. It's a very tough call, I think. There's an internal and external perspective to that. I mean, what is an extraordinary life to me? It is, it is certainly a, around a, a level of comfort internally and um, from a from a family perspective as well, but I think from what will bring that satisfaction, I think is also from an external perspective, is continuing to do what I do, solving problems for other people. Maybe I might be located on a nice beach, solving problems for other people. I mean, I'm I'm not going to sit here and say there's there's uh, nothing material attached to an extraordinary life. I think we need to be honest with that. So um, I I think there's a combination of um, having a social impact as well, a social purpose. Every, for every day I work or um, every engagement I secure as an interim executive, we contribute to a charity called B1G1 or Buy One, Give One. And we've created over 7,000 impacts this year for um, people that are in a less advantaged situation to us. So I think there's a mix of that. There's a mix of problem solving at a corporate level and at a societal level. Yeah, beautiful. And it's such a such a wonderful company. And oh, I love the mm. work that B1G1 are, are doing around the world. No, it's yeah, quite extraordinary. It is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Oh, it's really great. It's great to be part of it. Brian, It's you've shared so many great insights today and, and lots of wonderful real life lessons as well. Mm. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thanks. I, I'm, I'm not a self-promoter, so I have a LinkedIn profile. I have a book that was uh, released a month ago called Stop the Bleeding. Um, so I just think there is a very easy way to get in contact with me, and that's um, social media. Um, and I have a website, www.briansands.com.au. So um, thanks for the opportunity of mentioning that, Craig. Yeah, we'll pop those, I'll pop those links in the show notes for you. Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I love your approach to life. You know, you just got in there, get the hands dirty, just work hard and make things happen. But you've also got this wonderful approach that you're able to sit back and reflect and see things evolve as well over time and realize that people are at the absolute heart of 
everything we do. And it's so important to look after them, protect them and, and make sure they have an opportunity to grow and rise as well. Not just the bank balance and, and the company, <laughs> but the people get to to grow through that. Yeah, it's very important. Your insights into your real life situations of going through crisis in life through financial recessions and stock market crashes and how that's really affected your your work in the construction industry and now able to bring that to life through a book um, stop the bleeding is really special and i i know there's going to be a lot of people that by seeing the work that you're doing are going to make a positive mind shift and ensure that they can you know lead more effectively be a better person and maybe connect more effectively with their family so Brian, thank you so much. And you know, by the time this is released, it will be 2021. But I'm going to say I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And, and um, I look forward to seeing great success from the work that you're doing uh, in 2021 in the future. So thank you so much for sharing today. Thank you, Craig. It's been fantastic. My first podcast. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. And I hope you have a great Christmas and a, and a safe, awesome, successful 2021. Thank you for listening to a great conversation with Brian Sands, solving problems for other people on the Active CEO podcast. When it comes to a brand, it is more about the human elements than a logo, colors, or a tagline. You know, with Speakers Institute Corporate, we created a section in our brand guidelines called Our Body, which is all about our body language and how we show up. Here is an excerpt. A professional and charismatic balance between credible and approachable is found through our posture, tone, use of gestures, and our eyes. We practice and master everything that we teach others. You will always find us with a welcoming smile and open body language to ensure we connect, build, and nurture relationships with our team and our clients. There is intentional and focused energy in our movements that reaches out to our clients, whether it be one-on-one -on -one or to a group. You will see this in our straight backs, broad shoulders, deep breathing, and expansive energy fields. This generates an environment of inspiration and facilitates deep learning and connection. We are alert and switched on with our eyes and ears listening with our whole bodies to develop a greater understanding of others around us so as to learn how to best serve them. At all times, we show up professionally dressed and groomed appropriate to the attendees' training needs and context. We are always aware that the language of our body must be aligned with our words, intention, and desired outcome. We command with certainty and conviction, not just in what we say, but more importantly, how we say it. We are the models of inspiring great leaders who in turn inspire great leaders. What are the human elements of your brand? You know, if you need help around identifying the human elements of your brand, then please contact me at Craig at NRG, the number two, perform.com, or click on the contact page of the www.craigjohns.com.au website. And together, we can help you embody your message. 
Now coming up in the next episode is Michelle Gibbings, where we will have a fascinating conversation about I've got a bad boss and how you can navigate the situation successfully. Thank you so much for listening today. It's been an absolute pleasure serving you. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.